The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to those expressing them and do not necessarily reflect the OSA Foundation Incorporated or any other group or individual. This podcast may contain dialogue or subject material that could be considered for mature audiences only. All aspects of how you play the game and the OSIP Foundation Incorporated are protected by copyright and other state and federal intellectual property laws. Unauthorized use without the express written consent of the OSIP Foundation Incorporated is strictly prohibited. If you're interested in sponsoring how you play the game, please email us at podcast at osipfoundation.org. Your sponsorship may be tax deductible. Well, it's that time again. No, it's not time for another round of GoldenEye with slappers only. It's time for How You Play the Game, the official podcast of the OSA Foundation Incorporated. Yours truly, Jack Furlong, with you as we talk to you about what's going on as far as the world of sportsmanship is concerned. This is the first episode of the month of February. The year is thankfully 2021. Glad you can be with us. As always, check us out online at osipfoundation.org. Email the show. The address is podcast at osipfoundation.org. And on social media, facebook.com slash OSIP Foundation and Twitter and Instagram at OSIP Foundation, hashtag how you play the game. Across the way on the screen, as always, the producer engineer, Mr. Sean Ryan. Sean, hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm still here, and that's better than the alternative. That's true. So we have another fantastic episode for everybody today. Uh, Our guest today has written a number of books. The one we're focusing on today is called Getting Gamers, The Psychology of Video Games and Their Impact on the People Who Play Them. This man has a PhD, so he's automatically better than us at everything, including arts and crafts and the guitar, which makes, I think, Sean and I considered tools, and that's just a family guy (laughs) quote. But uh, our guest today is uh, Dr. Jamie Manigan. Jamie, how are you? Thanks for being here. I'm doing great. Thanks, Jack. Uh, Sean. I'm, it's, I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Um, your, your book, Getting Gamers, uh, was so integral to, I think, our message just in the beginning as I'm reading it because it talks about uh, topics related to competition, sportsmanship, mm. uh, and the like in the realm of video games, which probably could not be more um, apropos right now as we try and uh, wind down the, the the pandemic, you know, because we've had so many people quarantined. Uh, gamers are probably playing a lot of games at home, online. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a great way to try and pass the time as best you can. And 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 I really think that the topic uh, is, is, is just very perfect mm-hmm. to discuss right now. Um, the, the, the first unit of your book talks specifically about these topics, and I wanted to kind of just go through them a little chapter by chapter and, and have you explain to us and our listeners uh, a little bit more from your, your expert opinion. Um, your, the first chapter of the book is, is so, I, I just love the title because it just hits you right in the face. Why do perfectly normal people become raving lunatics online? Yeah. And, and Sean, you know this from personal experience, right? <laughs> Cause, cause you're, you're a raving lunatic online and on the golf course. So yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> he, he, he's, he's going to let me have that with a, like a nine iron when I see him later this week. So, um, but he, probably not like at the grocery store or at home. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, first of all, Sean doesn't because come over co- that often. Well, because so. of COVID. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, I think Sean only would come over to, to watch the Mandalorian with me on my Disney plus membership. So that's his way of saving seven bucks a month. Um, <laughs> this is you, the way. This is the way. <laughs> um, you, there, there's an interesting story 
in the chapter where you begin by telling us about uh, Jeffrey Lynn, uh, mm-hmm. who's another PhD. Uh, he, he wanted to tackle the issue of player behavior. Um, tell us a little bit about what he was looking at due to the lack of consequences, player anonymity, and, 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 and those types of topics that, that you begin to address as you begin your, your summit here in the book. Yeah, so Jeff Lynn at the time was part of Riot Games, maker of, of League of Legends, which is in some circles kind of a notoriously uh, difficult uh, community. It's, it's a tough game to get into, and people, uh, some of the people that play in it take it very seriously. And you hear stories about people bouncing off of that game and that community just because they encounter, you know, they have bad experiences. So <clears throat> he was part of a whole, like, I forget the name of, of the team, but like a player behavior team where it was like a cross-disciplinary group of people from, you know, psychology and computer science and, and other disciplines where they all came together and tried to figure out, like, how do we solve this this sportsmanship problem or lack thereof? And, you know, they experimented and tried a lot of different things and and looked at looked to the psychology literature for a lot of ideas on, on things to play with to try to get people to behave themselves. You know, when they get in these very small, like five v five teams uh, of players, and one of the the things amongst many that they looked at were was this idea of deindividuation, like where you kind of meld into a, a group and start to feel less like an individual and more like a a member of a group. And the fact that when that happens, you start to look to other members of the group for cues on how to behave. So one of the truisms is that, you know, when humans don't like uncertainty, right? So we try to reduce uncertainty however we can. And one way that we do that is by looking at the people around us. So if we're in a group and we're a stranger to that group and maybe we're trying this game out and we're not sure what's going on or what the community is like or what sort of behaviors are expected, we'll just look to the people around us to, right. to see like, okay, should I, should I throw slurs out? Should I behave myself? Should I you know, congratulate my team? Should I yell at my team for doing poorly? Uh, and even if this sort of stuff happens unconsciously, people often do it. And so the team there kind of looked at a number of different strategies like, okay, what if we stacked the deck in favor of sportsmanship in a number of different ways? Like, what if we had people who are friends with each other outside of the game, like they're on a friends list? What if we um, tried to pool those people together into those teams of five so that, you know, their friendliness would sort of set the tone for the rest of the team? right off the bat and people would pick up on that and be more sportsmanlike. Um, they experimented with like a bunch of different things around like banning and, and muting players to keep toxic, uh, you know, chat and, and comments uh, out of the discourse. They tried uh, letting people like discuss which roles they wanted to play ahead of the time. This was years ago or right. before a lot of these systems are kind of taken for granted. were are mm-hmm. first being experimented with. So they did a lot of work around this this idea of like, well, people are going to look to the environment for cues about to how to behave. People are going to look to those they see as in authority on for cues on how to behave when they're not sure uh, of the situation that they're in. And so I thought it was just a really interesting story that I try to highlight throughout the book and and throughout you know my website and and the podcast that I do myself about 
Like, what can you pull from the psychology literature that has very direct and real implications for player behavior? Because we're all people, right? You know, psychology is about behavior and attitudes and beliefs of people. And the those who play games are people. And a lot of those, especially drawn from like social psychology and behavioral economics, a lot of those explanations hold water as well or can lead to you know, fruitful experiments for uh, changing behavior and, and getting what you want out of your players and what they want. Right. And you mentioned the, the, the key word of uh, de-individuation, which was kind of the theme of, of, of the entire chapter. Um, do, do you think that it is as simple as saying we don't like uncertainty we, and we look for cues from the group to tell us how to react or are, you know, or is there more to, you know, or anything else that, that, that allow, you know, I, I would imagine there are more catalysts that speak to sure. what, uh, what continues to influence it. But if de-individuation is the, you know, the main culprit, what about it can we, can we look at and say, okay, what has to change here? Uh, you know, is it, because it seems like some of those things might be too tall of an order depending upon, you know, the, the technology that we may have or, or, you know, we just, you just can't regulate everything. Is there yeah. an, is there a solution to the de-individuation problem? Yeah. And, you know, as one of my professors used to say, like every, every output has multiple inputs, like there, there are multiple causes for every behavior and you can look at, look at them in one or a time and in groups and try to shave off uh, you know, variants and, and try to shape behaviors and you're going to do it in multiple ways and situations are going to be different. But yeah, I think de-individuation and anonymity are, are one thing that you can look at. Um, and the ways that you do that are lots, you know, all of the things I just described that riot tried to do, um, getting people to feel more like a sense of community, uh, leading by example of having, you know, prominent members of a community sort of set the tone uh, because we know that like leaders in any sort of group have an uh, outsized effect on setting the culture for that group. So leading by example, getting players with higher status to behave themselves as well and lead by example. And there's all kinds of things you can do, like reward people for good behavior, have that kind of honor system or that player um uh, what, you know, what's it called? Like where they recognize each other and give each other kudos and yeah, you yeah. score based around your good behavior. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is that you're not going to be able to avoid some of that anonymity and some of that feeling like you're a member of a crowd more than you are an individual. But there's are lots of tools in the toolbox that you can experiment with and you can you can play with. And, you know, sure, at the end of the day, some people are just assholes. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. you know, you're looking you at two that, of them right now. So <laughs> <laughs> that tail of the distribution that you're just going to have to either accept or ban or get out of your community somehow or somehow somehow mitigate, um, you know, their behavior. And I I had. I did like a whole podcast episode with an expert who studied trolling, you know, mm -hmm. in, in online spaces. And that was kind of her consensus as well as like the reasons that, that people do some of that behavior is wholly independent of, of playing the game. Like they're just doing it for their own mm. entertainment or to develop relationships and even friendships. But for, I think that for the vast majority of players, yeah, you can, you can tackle this stuff and you can mitigate it and you can change it. Maybe yeah. you'll never entirely get rid of it, but 
you can be better off than you were before. You can, you can limit it or curb it or whatever word you want to use. It's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an impossibility, I think, to eliminate. It's like trying to eliminate crime. You know, it's just, it, sure. it's, it, you, you can't do it a hundred percent, but there are steps that you can take to try and, and, and change the system, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned an incident in, in the chapter back in uh, July, 2010 with Blizzard Entertainment, where they wanted to remove the veil of anonymity right. uh, from their message boards. And, and then they ended up recanting because the backlash uh, from that was so large. What, what was it? that made them give in and and did they fold too easily do you i mean do you think it was as simple as just their bottom dollar line was going to be affected and so they realized they couldn't do this yeah i mean if i remember that incident correctly it was the around the real id at blizzard where they wanted to tie like your real name to your blizzard id mm-hmm. and so you know anyone would be able to see like jamie madigan you know was associated with this this string of letters and numbers that is my blizzard id mm-hmm. um and people really hated it a lot of people did and they they reacted very poorly um and i think that i mean this is sort of independent of the psychology angle but i think one of the most compelling arguments for that is that like look some sometimes some people some groups of people need their anonymity mm-hmm. in these spaces so like you know women tend to be harassed uh, more than men uh, trans people, gay people, people of color. Like there's, there is a lot of literature out there in the communications and computer science uh, spaces that say like these people are subject to more harassment. And if there's something about having their real name associated with it, or, you know, making it easier for somebody to look up who they are and what they are, what groups they're part of online, then that can lead to more harassment. So I think that was a large reason why, why people Mm. objected. like, well, anonymity is useful sometimes, right? Sometimes it serves a purpose and you need to give us the choice to do that. Um, And then maybe sort of running counter to everything I just said, people pointed out that even people who who are using their real name online still troll, still harass, still engage in these toxic behaviors. I mean, look at Facebook, right? Right. People are use their their real name on Facebook. A lot of people use their real name on Twitter and, and say toxic stuff other social media, et cetera. So it's not like a panacea. It's not a silver bullet to the problem. And if taking away that option for anonymity causes other problems, um, then maybe it wasn't the right move. So it's not, so it's really a, a legit argument about the cost benefit ratio, not adding up properly where you're just not going to get enough of an impact by doing it based upon the fact that Number one, people it, it just, people are already going to say, yeah, here I am. Come at me, bro. Um, and then, you know, so you're welcome. I use that line. And then the other one being that, yes, there are, like you said, there are times that anonymity, you can't, you just can't cast a blanket uh, thing like that and, and expect everybody to benefit from it. Those few times that, that, that you need that turn out to be, for lack of a better term, they could be life-changing. And, you know, I mean, I, I know that's a little bit, a bit of an obtuse way of looking at it, but if it does protect people, then, you know, in whatever way, shape or form, as you mentioned, it, it, it has to be considered. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it points to the fact that it's, it's not wholly about anonymity, right? It's more about this concept of de-individuation. Like, mm-hmm. even if you are using your own name and telling people your name, you can still feel lost in the crowd. Yeah. You can still feel uncertain about how to behave in a situation like that. The anonymity piece is not the whole part. 
Mm-hmm. It's not the whole picture. There are other things that come into play right. as well, and other other psychology. Now, you mentioned as you as you began to men- mention the idea of you know women being targets, uh, people of a different race or gender, eth- ethnicity being d- bigger targets. There were sites that you brought up in the book, um, such as the Bigot Gamer and Fat, Ugly, or Slutty, um, which, mm-hmm. according to your interpretation, is that. Uh, they're meant to fight back against the poor behavior. Now, in checking them, I, I think Fat, Ugly, or Slutty is still up. Uh, Bigot Gamer was not working when I checked. Uh, that could have been a technical error being the idiot that I am. Um, <laughs> but is is it could could to, to be the devil's advocate here, could sites like that actually hinder more than help at, at times? Because it seems like, obviously, the, the, it, there's an altruistic intention. They want to try to expose the people who are doing this poor behavior. Is right. there any chance that it could backfire? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I'm not aware of any any research that looked directly at it. The only sort of danger that I I would be interested in looking at is the extent to which it sort of normalizes that behavior mm-hmm. and and you know like says here here's a whole website cataloging this toxic behavior and somebody looking at that and getting the wrong idea that like that's that's normal or acceptable behavior just based on volume alone. Right. Right. Yeah. But um, I think those, those sites tend to frame that behavior in such like bad or in such a bad light, you know, saying like, this is look at this terrible behavior, look at these terrible people um, that that may, that may not happen if they're looking, you know, if somebody just kind of comes across that stuff and, and looks at it. Right. It'd be like if we said, here's a list of all the times we've exhibited poor sportsmanship or we've seen poor sportsmanship without the context of saying, and this is wrong. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Um, Another thing that you mentioned in the chapter is the, 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 the thrill of competition. Um, You know, Mm. how much does that play into being a catalyst for poor behavior? Because, you know, I think we've all been in situations where we're competing uh, whether it be athletic, non-athletic, whatever, it can be a job interview. It can be uh, yeah. a baseball game. It doesn't matter. There's there's a, there's a situation where something is wagered, for lack of a better term, and there is there seems to be a part of us that if we were to succeed, sometimes that type of poor sporting behavior comes out almost without us knowing it. Um, is, is there a way to, to change that? Is, does that warrant a change or do we just simply need to curb the behavior without eliminating it? You know, where you can say you can be excited. You just have to be careful for not saying things that cross the line. Yeah. I don't think we're going to be able to realistically curb competition, you know, even Mm -hmm. if sports or competition for limited resource, like a job or, you know, position or, or other resources, and I don't think we're going to be able to eliminate even themes like war or violence from our media, you know, including video games. Right. Um, so I, th- I think it really does come down to being aware, you know, of, of how these things might affect your thoughts and what thoughts they, they might put at the top of your head and, and sort of what effects these media have. And there's, there's a lot of debate about in the psychology field about these sort of media effects, you know, of does watching or participating in some sort of competition or even some sort of war themed game 
affect your behavior or your thoughts. And mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of research that says like, well, maybe it just sort of affects your thoughts, but it doesn't break through to affecting behavior. And there are people that says, yes, this sort of stuff causes violent behavior or, or toxic behavior and, and so forth. Um, but I think we do have to be aware of those possibilities and sort of come to experiencing games on our own terms. So that that's a lot of, of what I try to do is arm listeners and readers with, you know, this sort of information and then so that they can approach the hobby of playing games on their own terms and understand that like, okay, if I'm feel like I'm part of a, a crowd and I'm being encouraged to be toxic to other people. And the theme of this game is in fact, like destroying other people or, you know, us versus them and that kind of stuff. Like, well, how might that affect my behavior? And am I okay with that? And am I going to try to, you know, curb that behavior right. or, or lean in the other direction? And which, which I think sounds like very reasonable uh, methods and, 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 a, you know, admirable goal. Um, as you as you summed up the chapter with what we can do uh, to try and change that, the two things that I, I picked out were we have the ability to mute players at times, and there is an attempt also to prime players. Um, what can you talk about the idea of priming? Because I thought that was an exceptionally interesting idea that we 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 we're completely unaware that it's happening sometimes, and it really does a lot of good in my opinion. Yeah, I mean that that's just putting your best foot forward and leading by example, right? So mm-hmm. one of the things you can do at the beginning of a match is is throw out some friendly, you know, comments. Good luck, have fun. You know, you see that all the time ahead of of competitive matches, uh, video games and so forth or compliment somebody on you know on the other team or even on your own team for a well-done play or you know, a well-executed oh, Sorry. My dog is going off. Oh, I was going to say, I thought my ex-girlfriend was at your house. <laughs> <laughs> but you can you can lead by example and sort of set the tone, right? right. So that, that's one thing that everybody has in their power to do is to be able to prime people for good behavior by mm-hmm. behaving well themselves. Right. Um, it, as, as we move to chapter two, which is entitled, Why Do People Cheat, Hack, and Peek at Strategy Guides?, um, let me let me get off the uh, get on the record first of all. Uh, some strategy guides I find to be um, not the worst thing in the world. I guess if it's for a one-player game, I don't know how many uh, Legend of Zelda games I would still be playing if it <laughs> wasn't for X number of strategy guides, <laughs> authorized or not. Um, yeah. You know, I'm sure that those publishers can now pay me for endorsing that, but that's a different story that they they can use. I used one this morning for Final Fantasy 15. See? So, so you're I had so a little fun <laughs> trivia. I I kind of got my start in all of this writing strategy guides like really for books, yeah, back really? in like the late 90s and early 2000s. What what were some of the guides that you were working on? So okay, this is really going to date me, but okay. I wrote one for Unreal Tournament. Okay. And I wrote one for A Wheel of Time game, you know, okay. based on the books by Robert Jordan. Mm-hmm. It was a first-person shooter by Epic Games, and I wrote one for Blood 2, The Chosen, which if any of your listeners recognize that title, then you are, uh, you know, you, you know your lore, <laughs> your whole <laughs> video game. They were all like first-person shooter type games, uh, but it was pretty cool. They were like books that showed up in, in the bookstore, and I could go and look at them. Isn't neat. Blood Two: The Chosen is actually also the name of my upcoming autobiography. <laughs> um, so, but I, I think that's something I have to talk to my doctor about. Um, 
you there there are there are websites out there such as uh, fpscheats.com, project7.net that have monetized the business of cheating. Um, how has that not become even bigger than it is? And, and how have moral people not really stopped this? Or is there a way to stop it? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think it has, in a way, it has become bigger. And, and by the way, I'll, I'll draw a a clear distinction, as you were suggesting earlier, between using, you know, strategy guides and and purchasing ex, uh, executable, you know, cheat programs like mm-hmm. wall hacks or aimbots, and so those are two totally different things from right. every angle. But it the use of the latter has become a big deal because you you see so many companies investing money in anti cheat measures and banning measures and detecting you know those those sorts of things. Uh, and you see it in the rise of games as a service, you know, where you have games that are, you have to be connected, you know, to a server in order to play them. And that allows the developers to monitor your, uh, the information you're sending back and forth for signs of cheating for, for signs of using these programs. And so it's, it's this arms race between the game developers and the cheat developers, uh, to keep ahead of each other and, you know, a cheat developer will put something in place and then the, the game developer will figure out how to detect it and, and ban those people and take away their accounts and, and all that sort of stuff. So I think the fact that you don't see people cheating left and right is sort of belies the fact that a lot of resources are being invested in combating this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the uh, the South Park episode of World of Warcraft, where they have to uh, get the the sword in from Stan's dad, and the, there's the big guy who I think at one point had the uh, the nameplate that said Leroy Jenkins on it, and you know, so I just I just I and I One keep quoting. It's a great episode. <laughs> Mom, more hot pockets. <laughs> you know? Mom, bathroom. <laughs> oh man, um, you you mentioned the the valve anti-cheat system mm-hmm. um can you talk about that and whether or not labeling someone as a cheater works to stop cheating yeah boy i'm trying to remember exactly what i wrote there so i think the idea was around uh, labeling somebody a cheater versus saying that you cheated right and i think that the some of the the research that I cited there says that people tend to live up to their labels, right? I understand, or, yeah. Or they they object strongly to mm-hmm. being labeled, you know, a cheater, um, more so than they would object to being uh, told that they cheated. Mm-hmm. And it, it's an important kind of psychological difference there because one of them is an attack on our 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 identity, and the other one is sort of like a behavior that we can brush off and say like, well, I did that you know, this one time just, just for the fun of it. And it's not like who I am. I'm not a cheater. I cheated. Yes, but I am not a cheater. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, labeling or threatening to label publicly, especially somebody a cheater and to attack their identity and their reputation is, uh, potentially powerful weapon and people will react poorly to it, you know, maybe to the extent of, getting new accounts and replacing their old one and starting over or finding, trying to find some other way around it. You know, uh, Jamie, just to piggyback on, on what you're saying, there's a great documentary and I don't know if you heard of it called uh, King of Kong. Oh yeah. Full of quarters. 
Yeah, I talk and about it in the book, in fact. Yeah. I was I was just, yeah. So I, I kept saying to Jack, we we have to watch this mm-hmm. because Billy Mitchell is, is, yeah. is the is the epitome of that very person you describe. He in saying you can you can say that I cheated, but don't call me, don't you dare call me a cheater. Like yeah. that sort of attitude is like perfect, like perfect for what um you described and um really and especially in, in the context of like all the recent stuff that's happened with mitchell where like his yes. old records came into question and people accused him of using modified hardware to play those mm-hmm. games and yeah and i'm, I'm listening to, the, to to that and it's you know it's it, for me it's ringing bells when it comes to uh the steroid era in baseball to a certain mm-hmm. degree mm-hmm. you know i know that there are you know again we we that's a kind of a topic for a different show but you know, can you, where, where do you late, do you label some of these potential hall of famers as cheaters or did they just cheat? And, you know, and that's a very gray area and, and, you know, how we, how we laud them is, is always up for debate as a result of that. You know, I mean, you're, you're yeah. in St. Louis. So I think of Mark McGuire and yep. and what went on in 1998 and how mm-hmm. we look back on it the, now. It's the home it's, run derby. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's a, it's a completely, and at least with him, he came out and whatnot and said, you know, admitted this eventually, but there's just a lot of debate to go into that about, do we, you know, do we label these people as cheaters or did, do we just say that they cheated and how do they respond to that? So I think that that the, the psychology of that is very, very interesting. And, and a, it could be used, I think, like you said, there are many tools in the toolbox. That seems to me to be an, an incredibly important one when it comes to trying to curb behavior and promote better sportsmanship. In that, mm-hmm. it, you, you, if you uh, if you appeal to that, there seems to be you know, like, you know the cost benefit ratio seems to tilt in your favor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're very social animals, humans, and our reputations are are often very important to us. And mm-hmm. so, anything that that threatens that and thus threatens our own sense of identity is a is a powerful lever. Yeah. In a lot of times. Mm. Talk about um, loss aversion, if you will, mm. and and how that plays into uh, a person's desire to uh, to potentially cheat. Yes, loss aversion one of my one of my favorite topics, uh, actually, and it, it comes from a a bunch of research that was done by um, a couple of guys, one of whom won a Nobel Prize in in economics. Uh, but he's a psychologist by training, and a lot of this has to do with with psychology. Loss aversion is just the fact that, you know, a loss of something hurts more than an equivalent gain feels pleasurable. So, losses loom larger than gains. Mm-hmm. So if I if I lose five dollars, I feel bad more than I feel good if I find five dollars. Makes sense. And we will go to disproportionate ends to avoid losses relative to the things that we'll do to get an equivalent gain. And, you know, you see this show up in, in game design all the time where people or game designers will sort of try to frame things differently um, to avoid them feeling like a loss and maybe make them feel like somebody else's gain or, or, or it's, it's not a game, but it's just, it, it's not a loss. It's something I didn't gain. Like one of my, favorite examples is I had a guy named um, Jeff Engelstein uh, on my own podcast, who's a board game designer. 
and he's he wrote a book about this whole topic of loss aversion and he was talking about a game that he was developing and it was like a race type of game where it's like the first person to get all the way around the board wins you know like mm-hmm. sorry or mm-hmm. any of those kinds of games and it had like a f1 racing motif to it and I forget exactly like what it was, but there was some mechanic or, you know, if you drew this card or if this thing happened to you, then you had to go five spaces back. Like you had to put it in reverse and back up five spaces. And the players that he was testing this with like hated it. Like they, it really tanked their enjoyment of the game when it happened. So he's like, all right, what I'm going to do then is instead of having the player go five spaces back, I'm going to have every other player on the board go five spaces forward. Interesting. Same result, right? Yeah. Like there's everybody else is five spaces ahead of you, um, whether you go back five or they all go forward five. But players did not have that strong negative reaction to everybody else gains five that they had to I lose five. Interesting. Um, it, it almost seems like it could speak even to topics like um, gambling, where if I go to a casino and you know, I, you know, and, and I, and I lose, you know, X amount of dollars playing whatever game, you know, I understand that, you know, like I may, like I, I, first of all, it may, it seems like it would fuel me to say, I can't believe I lost this much. So it's going to almost fuel me to say, I got to get more money and get back out at the table. But then if, even if, even if I were to recoup that, you know, the, the the gaining of, let's say I lose $300 at a, at a blackjack table, the gaining of $300 back to break even just does not have the same juice to it as yeah. when I lost that 300 And I walk out of the casino only wasting my time rather than anything else. Totally. Yeah. You know? Do you... Yeah, do you that's why ahead. people that sting so much and they want to get back there and get back at least to to where they were when they walked in. Right, right. Do you do you think it's as simple as saying that everyone cheats a little bit and we have to just mm-hmm. keep it to a minimum? Eh, I don't I'm not sure that everybody cheats a little bit. Okay. I mean, cheating, especially in the chapter that I wrote here is it's fairly narrow in definition, right? It's like mm-hmm. doing something to break or circumvent the rules. Okay. Um, and it's not, it's not looking up a, a solution to a puzzle, like that sort of stuff. I see. And, and even, you know, I was most interested in the context of cheating in a way that, that hurts other people or mm-hmm. puts you at an advantage in a competitive environment. I see. You know, like, okay, in, install your little save file editor for your single player games. Yes, that's technically cheating, but it's not as interesting a problem or, or even a cons- as consequential a problem as uh, installing a, an aimbot that lets you land headshots from across the map 100% of the time. Right, right. Yeah. I, mean, I understand. So, so it's not, if we, if we change the context, so to speak, or adjust the context to, to what you're saying, you're, you're, not, you're not hurting anybody if you check out a strategy guide for a one-player Zelda game, but when you are you know, doing what you said, you know, an aimbot for something like that, where now the other person who is, a, you know, a complete innocent bystander loses all <laughs> liberty as a result of this, where you've got a, you've got a different problem on your hands with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I understand. Although, you know, individually, you know, there are some, I'm trying to think of a situation. So like the game shark for the right. N64, mm-hmm. right. Um, is essentially a cheat box. I mean, you could you could you know, all these codes that you can put in, 
And uh, heck yeah, remember- it was. That was fun. Do you yeah. still have yours? Because my buddy still has his. No, I still have okay. one. You still have but, one? Okay. But see, here's the thing for me though. Like I, on an individual level, so when I'm playing, when I played Turok Dinosaur Hunter, there was that you know uh, the God mode where you can just get an infinite amount of lives, infinite health, all the weapons, all the ammo. Mm-hmm. Almost feels like if I'm going, it almost makes me a little bit angry that I haven't, if I did that before trying everything else, that's more of an individual thing on my part. But Mm -hmm. this brings up the point that I often bring up with Jack is the, 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 the sportsmanship of individualism, you know, whether that's like within the context of a single player game, whether that be golf or bowling, or if you're so angry with yourself that you're, you're beating yourself down that's poor sportsmanship on that's like redirected towards yourself. Um, at least that's how I see it. So if I play Turok Dinosaur Hunter and I get to the very end and I don't need any cheat codes, I feel much better. I'll feel much better about myself than if I just say, get to the third level and be like, ah, screw it. I'm just going to put in the code and play the rest of the game. I just don't feel complete. But I guess that's more of a, a personal preference. But I guess there, I think there is a degree of sportsmanship with the individual uh, when it comes to that sort of thing. Yeah, and it, and not all games and not all situations are equal, right? So mm-hmm. I, I I have a terrible confession for you guys here. This is an exclusive. Oh, for looking podcast. forward to it. Uh, I cheat <laughs> in single player games. I've never okay. downloaded a, a trainer or an aimbot or a wall hack or anything like that. But um, like, for example, there's this, this game, it's, it's still an early access, but I fell into a deep hole with this game called satisfactory. Hmm. And it's a game where you build the, it, it's from a first person perspective and you, you like harvest resources and build these giant factories. So you're building like, buildings and machines inside of them and so forth. Hmm. And at a certain time, at a certain point, it got too difficult for me to really do what I wanted to do from that first person perspective where I was just like stuck on the ground, just like looking up and maybe I had to like climb on top of other buildings to get the angle I needed to place these pieces. Hmm. And eventually like the game gives you a jetpack, but that's like way, way down the tech tree. So I downloaded a mod that let me fly and, mm. you know, I was able to build the buildings that I wanted uh, and, and so forth. And, you know, I've done that in other games where like, man, this, this encumbrance system in this role-playing game is terrible. And I'm constantly like wasting my time, like mm. adjusting my inventory so that I can get back to playing the game. And so I'll, you know, use a cheat code to, to, uh, eliminate encumbrance or something like that. See now, and that is in service of me having fun, and that is in 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 response to a bad game design, from my point of view. I was just gonna say, like you know, the developer, if you're if you're doing this factory building and this this where you have this where you're confined to an area, and you're, it would behoove the developer to make it sort of a top down view. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, rather than first person. So that's that's what I was going to actually say, that it could have been a fault, you know, of the developer in that case. Yeah. And I think communities will develop their own sort of norms around mm-hmm. 
whether or not that stuff is acceptable. Like in the mm. satisfactory community, using a fly mod is standard. Like mm -hmm. people sharing their factories on YouTube, everybody knows that they use that. But reporting the world high score on Donkey Kong to Twin Galaxies, you know, they are very serious and strict about that stuff that you don't use like a modified motherboard or right. a modified game board or or uh, any sort of assistance on that that kind of thing. So yeah. it awesome. it varies from game to game and community to community, but there are some things that are clearly beyond the pale uh, everywhere. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if you if you download a wall hack or install a lag switch or, or something like that, then yeah, even the person doing the cheating knows that they're cheating. Now here here's another exclusive. Uh, God mode is actually Sean's stripper name. Oh, <laughs> so, so if you ever come across that on the internet, close down immediately. And I don't take yeah. singles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> five, at least fives, okay? <laughs> a better stripper name than IDKFA. Yeah. <laughs> now there's a real deep deep uh, cut. Here. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere, somebody is pouring bleach on their eyes preemptively uh, while their kids eat Tide Pods. <laughs> uh, kids don't eat Tide Pods, um, but to, but but you, you, that's a fantastic point to, to to give you my exclusive. So one of the things that I started doing with all this free time on my hands is I got back into playing uh, Smash Brothers for the Wii U because mm -hmm. I'm the only guy left in the world who still has a Wii U, <laughs> and and you know I realized that X number of challenges that are that are in the game that they want you to beat they give you the opportunity to customize your character in order to help you beat that. And there seems to be, you know, or at least I, the way I originally interpreted it was, I don't need to customize these characters. The, the, the game gives you these characters and it's up to me to master using these characters in order to beat it. And as mm -hmm. I'm going, I'm like, I'm like stumped. I'm like, I can't, I can't beat this. There's no way, no human being, unless they are, modified themselves can beat this and that's when i started using the customizations and all of a sudden i was like i can beat this now i don't believe it you know mm -hmm. so so it, it re, you know if the game designers didn't put that in there it's almost like well why would why would you not use it if it's in there mm. you know so 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 it really grays that that area um and 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 again now the, the game is enjoyable again to me you know now i'm doing things that i couldn't do years ago as a result of it. So if I'm not hurting anybody else, yeah. you know, does, does, does that, if, if enjoyment is an economically uh, measured thing and, and tangible, it seems like it would go up for me as a result of being able to customize characters, which to some people might be considered cheating, but to other people, that's part of the game. Yeah. So, so mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really uh, interesting topic to, to look at because it, it forces us at the very least, I think, to, examine the 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 gray areas and the boundaries of of maybe what some of our preconceived notions are um in in chapter three of your book which is entitled why are fanboys and fangirls so ready for a fight um and i believe that at any local uh star wars convention you will see this uh <laughs> mostly again attended by sean because he has i think at least a double-sided lightsaber that he uses in, in somewhere somewhere okay <laughs> it's on the wall next to your giant lego star destroyer right <clears throat> yep yeah i know it. Um, i'm jealous i don't be because sean has a lot of time on his hands um <laughs> and that's the pot calling the kettle black um 
Talk about the key phrase in this chapter, which is cognitive dissonance, because mm -hmm. I found this to be so universal, even outside of games. I wanted to really highlight this. Yeah. So cognitive dissonance is like, it's, it's a pretty old concept in psychology and it basically describes the discomfort that's created from trying to hold two simultaneously hold two beliefs that contradict each other. So, you know, trying to say this thing is good and this thing is bad and believing that at the same time, um, we tend to avoid cognitive dissonance. So this sort of sprouts a whole other set of biases and patterns of thinking where in order to avoid cognitive dissonance, especially like between our behaviors and our, our espoused beliefs, for example, like, you know, I say this thing is bad and then I do it myself, for example, you know, we'll downplay information that causes that cognitive dissonance or downplay information, you know, cognitive um, uh, information that says one thing when we're doing another. So we'll, we'll try to find ways to equivocate and interpret things differently and set things aside or come up with wacko conspiracy theories that explain how we can hold these two things uh, true at once uh, and having those sort of ambivalent thoughts of, of feeling that two thing, two contradictory things are true. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was reading about cognitive dissonance in your book, I, it was it was around the time of you know the the 2020 elections and 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 I don't I got I got to preface this by saying any any political discussion here is general it, it, not trying to take any sides push one thing or another the reason that I bring it up is because I realized that that seemed to be cognitive dissonance seemed to be rampant in that because people seem to believe in perhaps one candidate over another or one issue over another. And they, they, they almost force themselves to, to, to fight the antithesis in the name of their original uh, belief system. Candidate A believes what I believe, but when it comes to issues X, Y, and Z, he, he or she doesn't. Therefore, I have to somehow reconcile that cognitive dissonance within my own belief system so that I can continue to support this candidate in full. And, 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 and the, 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 the solution that I read was your definition of ambivalence, which you, I know you just used, in that we, we, we have this, uh, this idea that it means one thing, but in reality it means another, as you described in your book. So the, the question is twofold. One was my analogy anywhere close to, 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 to accurate? And two, how can you discuss your definition of ambivalence and, and what we need to do as people to redefine it to its true meaning and apply it when dealing with cognitive dissonance? Yeah, no, I think you were right on uh, in, in that analogy. And ambivalence is one of those, those words that in casual usage, it's kind of come to mean like I like, I don't care. Like yeah. I, I'm ambivalent. Like yeah. I don't have any strong feelings either way, whatever. But in like technically and in, in more technical use, especially in the field of psychology, it means ha holding two beliefs at the same time and be, mm. you know, meaning two, um, much in the same way of like ambidextrous means that you could use either hand mm -hmm. uh, to, to do equally well. So, 
you know, this idea of holding these multiple beliefs at the same time, it's difficult, you know, especially to the extent that those beliefs contradict each other. Um, and people will react and sort of reduce that discomfort by either changing their beliefs or changing their behaviors a lot of times. And one or more of those may be more difficult in, in different circumstances and different situations. You know, if we've made like very public statements uh, and gone on record, um, you know, we did our 11 hour YouTube rant, you know, right. <laughs> about yeah. our certain position. Uh, it's difficult then to like say that you're changing your behavior or, or changing your, uh, your belief system. Cause people will call you on it. Right. Right. Yeah. Again, it's like, we're protecting our identity. We're protecting our, our ego. And I mean that e use that term ego to mean like sense of self mm -hmm. more than like, you know, your old Freud stuff. But, right. Um, you know, we're protecting our own, our own identity. Right. Uh, when we do that. And so people will twist themselves into all sorts of, unlikely shapes in order to do this. And, you know, I can't remember, I can't remember where I heard this, but there was a phrase that I, I think sums this up and that I really like, and it also applies equally well to the political discussion and, you know, member of, of my tribe, my party. And it also even applies, I think, to like Xbox versus PlayStation debates uh, mm -hmm. that come up and somehow Nintendo always gets left out of those, but we're, we're used to it by now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the idea is that it's more important to be a member of your group in good standing than it is to be correct. Interesting about something. So yeah. people will expend more effort and sort of change their behaviors and beliefs in order to stay a, a member in good standing of whatever like group they consider important to them and they'll do that even if it means that they are at some level aware of of contradictory or false statements or information or say willing to um downplay the importance of certain beliefs or say like well that that's true but this other thing is more important so i'm going to give it more weight to my decision or somehow or something like that so that that I think is a very interesting idea to me that like mm -hmm. group membership mm. and being part of my in-group and not risking getting expelled from it is a bigger motivator to our behaviors than is being factually correct. So the, the idea of the group mentality is it, it seems much more uh, prevalent in that, especially in these times where we, we force ourselves, whether we know it or not to align with something in its entirety and, 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 you know, and, and, and subscribe to that and dedicate and pledge ourselves to that, even though facts may contradict it. And, 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 and to me, that really proves the, the importance of um, the individual thinker to a certain degree, because we do kind of push that in our, in our society, again, whether it's mm -hmm. pol politics, whether it's Xbox, PlayStation, you know, whether it's, you know, Coke, Pepsi, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it, 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 we, we force ourselves to say the group mentality, which, which I, I guess really ties it back also to why, you know, perfectly normal people become raving lunatics online because they want to, be part of that group. And that is so much more yeah. subconsciously important than 
having the ability to individually say, well, I believe this, but I believe that. And I recognize that th there are, there's, there's not, it's, dissonant and there's something's not right there so to speak mm -hmm. but but i accept that and i'm willing to sit and struggle with that yep yeah and i think it it becomes particularly systemic and predictable when you're talking about groups that people feel are very important to their identity mm -hmm. so you jump into a, a match of league of legends and you play and you don't you don't feel like necessarily a lasting membership to that five person team you know those four other people on the team but if you are a member of a certain political movement, if you are uh, a consumer who has bought into the ecosystem for a particular you know, product, like Apple versus Android or Xbox versus PlayStation or something like that, um, then it starts to get a little bit more related to like your identity and the fact that you have dug in and have these kind of lost or sunk costs you know, I've spent so much money getting into this ecosystem, for example, that, you know, Apple has to be better than right. Windows, you yeah. know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and I wrote about that in the book. And, and at the time that the launch of the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3, I believe it was. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And those console wars that, yeah. that happened there. Another South Lock topic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Use that as kind of a, a framing uh, device. And this sort of thing is more pronounced or I think more likely to happen, even though we get uh, the attention seems to be the cases where like the, the truth, you know, and I'm, I'm putting up air quotes here mm -hmm. um, or even truth without air quotes, like do vaccines cause autism? No, right. they clearly don't like right. the science and, and all evidence says that, that they don't um, like that is sort of fascinating because it's so extreme because people are banging their heads against something that everybody else knows is true. Right. But I think you, it shows up other more subtle places like, like the ecosystem buy-ins that I talked about or mm -hmm. fandom, you know, mm -hmm. star Wars versus star Trek versus Dr. Who versus whatever Sean's into these days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sean, what are you into these days? <laughs> I was going to say, you know, this, uh, the quote that I, that, that I remember that encapsulates this perfectly is, uh, that episode of Seinfeld where Jerry has to take a lie detector test to impress his girlfriend. And mm -hmm. George gives him advice saying, it's not a lie if you believe it. Right. And, right. And, 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 you know, it sort of becomes that psychology where if, if you, if you believe a lie enough, you really start to think that there's no other, there's no, there's no other existence. Like, like this is it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I won't, I refuse to believe anything else because you've built it up in your head so much. Um, it's, yeah, it's, what, it's fascinating. What's more anxiety producing is the fact that it might be a lie, you know, right. that, mm -hmm. that it, this could right. be untrue. And that, mm -hmm. that's where we start to get into uh, some real anxiety. Right. I think that, I think that lie was uh, the lie detector test was about Melrose Place, was it not? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, which is ironic because Sean is definitely the George Costanza to my Jerry Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> can I be Kramer? Yeah, yeah sure. you have, yes, yes, you can. Or Lane. Which one? Uh, well, <laughs> one know. one of them involves you walking in my door unexpectedly and going right into my refrigerator. Crazy dance. We'll see. Yeah, and the yeah, and the and the other one means being Kramer. So. <laughs> I, as, as you're talking about um, that, another topic 
or an idea that came into my head when it comes to that deals with sports fandom. You know, as a New York Yankees fan, people ask me sometimes about different players that we that we sign or different, you know, different coaches or whatever the case may be. And when, you know, it's one thing when like you don't agree with it from a strategic point of view. It's another thing when they do something off the field um, that is considered very wrong and how you're supposed to react as such. Mm. You know, um, I think of Aroldis Chapman, who was signed to this big contract to be the closer, and then he gets banged for domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. And, and, and therefore, people will ask me, you know, like, can you still be a Yankees fan as a result of that? And I said, yes, because, you know, I, I, you know, I, and another Seinfeldian quote, you know, you root for the laundry, not necessarily the, for the uniform. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so, so I can't change my fandom, but I can say I don't approve of what he did. Now, do I still want him, you know, closing out games? Well, if he's going to be effective, yes, you know. Um, now, it would be different if it was an Alex Rodriguez for using steroids and whatnot. Then I, you know, then I might say, well, I don't want him on my team because he is cheating the game, and although I will still root for the team, it's hard to root for him for, for those purposes. But the idea is that you can remain a fan of the team and not subscribe or, yeah. or induce or condone, uh, endorse or condone the, the you know what these people are doing. That's yeah. I think you can. Mm-hmm. I think also think this is like a whole huge other topic that I'm not particularly well equipped to like discuss because I mm-hmm. think you know it then skirts into like, well, are you still a Harry Potter fan if you are in favor of trans people's rights because right. J.K. Rowling you know, is, is not right. (laughs) And like, can you separate the, the artist from the art and can you separate the player from the organization? Yeah. Um, we've, we've talked about that ad nauseum too. We talked about that many moons ago with, I think it was Michael Jackson. Was that right? Yeah. Just the idea. Can you wait? What? Yeah. We, we talked not the Michael Jackson. The Michael Jackson. Okay. Because From it was, the Jackson it, Five. And yes, yes. Michael Jackson. Right. Exactly. We, <laughs> okay. We we what we tried to. Oh exist- no! I thought you were saying you talked to him. Like you. Had oh no! Him- oh, oh no! 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 <laughs> like that would have had to have been a while back. <laughs> that was a seance, and um and and it was really weird because this dude shows up to my door. He doesn't have a nose. And he keeps saying that everything is ignorant. And I was well, like, we, are you Michael we Jackson? Hired our, we just hired our friendly neighborhood necromancer. Exactly. <laughs> and he said, look at this birthmark. <laughs> I've had girls say that to me on a date, too. It's, it's, it's kind of the same thing. But, but right. yeah, it's the same idea in that, you know, can we, can we look at his art, his music, and separate that from the person that, he was and and the debate rages on and Mm -hmm. there is that level of ambivalence that has to continue to form it has to the 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 debate must Mm -hmm. continue i think because it will always be evolving and and it's 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 better in my opinion to continue the debate uh carefully and properly rather than to avoid it and just say, and wash your hands of it because you're not going to make any progress that way because there are too many things in society where you need to have that level of ambivalence and continue that dialogue because that's the only way that we're going to have better sportsmanship. We're going to, you know, compete fairly. We're going to respect one another. Yeah. 
And that's sort of a running theme in psychology around this sort of stuff, that these these biases, these patterns of thinking, like we all have fun calling them out when they when they cause weird situations like this or they cause errors in judgment and people to make mistakes. But in a lot of ways, you know, they're very functional. Like they allow us to get through the day without considering every possible piece of information and weighing it into our decisions and and never getting out of bed, you know, in our attempt to do that because it's just impossible to do that that right. sort of thing. Um, the, the the final topic I wanted to look at, it, it steps outside of sportsmanship a little bit. It goes into chapter five where you talk about, it says, uh, how do games get us to keep score and compete? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've been talking so much about sportsmanship within competition, but I think it's important to look at the nature of competition just to provide, you know, kind of that, that, that bow on it. Um, can you, can you explain to someone who's, who, who, just wants to have a general understanding what it is about these games that get us to keep score, get us to compete. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how much does it play into uh, a human being's competitive nature? How much of it is, is based on a company's bottom line? You know, what, what is it in general, if you had to sum it up? Yeah. So I I wrote that chapter. And then I also have a a whole other chapter in my newer book, The Engagement Game, which talks about like all the stuff in the context of work, like Mm -hmm. video game design in the context of work. And those chapters deal a lot with um, the social comparisons that we want to make when when we're competing or when we're being scored or ranked or that kind of thing. And a lot of times we get, you know, we get a score of say like, oh, you were level five or you got eight out of 10. And it's like, well, what does that mean? I don't understand that. Like devoid of any other context, I don't know what level five means. Is that good? You know, or this time on a, on a racetrack or this beating this level on Candy Crush or, or whatever it is. And so what we do, and again, kind of going back to one of the earlier themes that I talked about, is we look at the people around us. And we say, well, what level are they at? What was their time on this racetrack? What were they, what score were they able to get? And that can give us some context for how well we did. But nowadays when we have information, we have so much information about so many other people, you know, like we may have like a global leaderboard for this game that we play, Mm -hmm. or we may be part of a company that has tens of thousands of employees and, you know, we see that this other region in a different part of the world and people selling different products have sold more than we're able to. You start to then try to cut it and valuable, the more valuable information is that that lets you know, well, what are people like me similar to me doing? So, you know, somebody who is at similar skill level in a video game or, or a sports competition, somebody who's at a similar age, somebody who is able to put in, you know, is on my side of the distinction between competitive and casual, you know, those kinds of things. And we start to try to look for all this information that helps us decide, like, is this a good person to compare myself to? Mm-hmm. And games and managers can frame information in more or less helpful ways to help people answer those questions. Um, people will tend to look to like their friends and their people that they consider part of their peer group because they know more about those people and can make those distinctions of, 
you know, is this person similar or dissimilar to me? Are they a good comparison target? Uh, so hmm. that's, that's what a lot of that is. I'm not yeah. sure if I answered your question. I, th- I think you did because, you know, as you're, as you're explaining that, I thought of an example in my own life where I, I think I fell prey to that. And, I, and, I, and as a human being, I'm going to continue to fall uh, prey to it. You know, as a professional musician myself, um, outside of a pandemic, hmm. you know, one of the components is obviously playing live music. And you're trying to maximize the number of gigs that you have and, you know, and, and put that into context with not just getting paid for it, but exposure, if it's helping you sell albums, if um, it helps you get other gigs, you know, there's a lot of different things that go into it. And I know that I have in the past through, you know, we'll call it, you know, envy. I look at other people who I would compare myself to either either other saxophonists or even members of my own jazz quartet who are working other gigs. And, Mm. you know, and, and, and I compare myself to what they're doing either personally or with other groups or whatever. And, and that reacts, makes something react in me that would probably be very similar to the competitive nature of someone looking at a global leaderboard and saying, well, this person or this group is doing better than me, and I'm going to try and do better than that now because mm-hmm. of what it's, it, it, how it's appealing to my identity. So, I, I, I mean, does that, does that seem like the idea as you just kind of explained mm-hmm. it? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. And then there's other things, other almost like arbitrary goalposts that game developers or or anybody else writing about this sort of stuff and people writing the record books could talk about of creating like, okay, well, you're in the top 25%, you're in the top 10%. You are in amongst the top players in your state or your part of the country. Mm-hmm. You are amongst the best players who use this particular character, you know, in a game mm-hmm. or play this particular position. So there's like lots of different ways that you can dice it. And then like presenting those things and saying like, well, you're close to moving up a rank or you're right. close to breaking, breaking through or beating this person. Like you can motivate people that way by finding these sort of meaningful little um, goalposts that, that mean, you can put in front of people. Yeah. I mean, look at the, look at the achievement system, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we see it all the time. Every time I turn on my PlayStation, I see your friend just got this achievement in this game. Right. And it's it is a motivator in some ways like oh man we're playing the same game and he got that before me i know i want that i could beat him yeah like i want that now i want to do that so i'm going to try it right so yeah it's it it, it's a i think it's also it's a big marketing tool i mean Mm. you know it it encourages you to play the game for longer it encourages you to get the downloadable content and all the add-ons and you know oh my my friend just downloaded this add-on. Well, now I have to have it. You know, yeah. it's so it's absolutely it's it's a big motivator. There was a there's a really fascinating study done amongst PGA golf um, as opposed to other PGA players, but you know, golfers and members right. of the PGA, and how many strokes they took in different situations, and they pretty consistently found that you know if they were if the golfers were trying to make a shot or a putt that would keep them from going over par on that hole, they were more accurate. Like they 
they drove the ball further, they got it in the hole than if it was just any other shot that like would get them closer to getting, you know, the hole, but, uh, but wasn't the one that determined whether or not they would go over or under par on that hole. So, I mean, looking at that another way, it's like those golfers put in more effort and they were more careful to do their best putting or their best, you know, hitting when it meant going over par or not. Hmm. Uh, So even just some sort of pretty, you know, standard, but somewhat arbitrary uh, line in the sand, you know, the bunker, I guess. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I should try, Uh, I should try that on Friday. When you're in the sand. (laughs) If I, if I may quote happy Gilmore, this guy spends more time in the sand than David Hasselhoff. Okay. (laughs) So, um, and I think the, the, the only coda that I'd like to put on, on that is that, you know, as we talk about this, there's there. This is a very objective um, examination of it. I just want to make sure that people know that you know we shouldn't be feeling, uh, you know, a sense of shame or, or 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 like we've done something wrong within the context of that to a certain degree. When, you know, there's obviously a way that you can cross a boundary and you can cross the, the proverbial line, um, but. I, what I what I want to make sure is that you know people don't say well if I feel this way you know even if it's a sense of envy I it, you're it's 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 better to examine that and to and to you know sit in it and to you know work with it rather than to, to suppress it and say oh I shouldn't be feeling that way or anything like that it's we, we, it's a it's a different situation altogether and just because we examine the topic doesn't mean that we're trying to necessarily point out you know where people are bad. Yeah, no, it's yep. it's a very effective tool for motivation and for increasing your performance. Mm-hmm. Could lead you astray, you know, in the context of video games of, oh, I'm jealous of that person's thing that they bought with real money. So right. now I'm going to go spend five bucks on that thing um, when I don't have five bucks to spend. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to support necessarily this developer. Then jealousy is a little bit more of an issue. And yeah. I think you're right. And again, going back to... The thing I say I try to do, which is to equip people with the information to approach these things on their own terms. Yeah. Um, before before we wrap up, Jamie, I just wanted to, to give you the floor one final time, say whatever you need to say. Um, are there any other aspects in your experience that we haven't covered that speak to these topics? Is there, you know, is, is there a way that you'd like to sum things up? Whatever you want, the floor is yours. No, I think I think we talked about a lot of a lot of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Covered covered a lot of ground uh, in this conversation, and I am just you know I'm I'm a video game booster and I'm a psychology booster, and I love when those two topics come together. Mm. And I think applying them to you know sports is equally um, valuable and mm-hmm. yields similar rewards. And so I love it when people dip into the psychology literature and apply it to contexts that are not you know, college freshmen sitting out and filling out questionnaires, like a lot right. of psychology or literature is, yeah. but use it to answer very, very practical problems. Like how do I design a game better? Um, how do I motivate players to practice harder? Um, how do I tell if I'm happy or not with, you know, the results of my performance? Mm-hmm. Um, I love seeing science applied to those very practical 
kind of down to earth problems. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I think it helps advance us significantly. Uh, Jamie, I can't thank you enough for being with us. It is an absolute pleasure to, to speak with you, to, to get to know you and your research. Uh, the book is called getting gamers, the psychology of video games and their impact on the people who play them. Uh, your website is psychologyofgames.com. Uh, why don't you plug one more time the other book and your podcast and anything and everything you need to plug because it's, it's very important stuff and I want people to check it out. Sure. No, and I, I appreciate the invitation to come on. I always love talking shop. So this was yeah. fun. Um, the other book is called The Engagement Game, Why Your Workplace Culture Should Look More Like a Video Game. Uh, just mm-hmm. recently came out uh, and it is about how do we take the lessons of the psychology of video games and game design and apply it to the workplace mm-hmm. where we can help people be more motivated, help them learn better, help them deal with stress and problems better. And like, how can you be a better leader or manager uh, in that context? Um, that comes out because my, my psychology background uh, and career has been in industrial organizational psychology, which is psychology applied to the workplace. Mm-hmm. And I find a lot of overlap between that and the psychology of video games. Um, but yeah, psychologygames.com is the best place to go to find out about all the stuff. I'm, I'm at Jamie Madigan on Twitter, for example. There's a Facebook page for the website, and I do my own podcast where I bring on an expert to talk about some topic related to psychology and video games. Um, and you can find out how to subscribe to that or check out existing episodes at psychologygames.com. That's beautiful. Uh, Jamie, again, thank you so much. It, it, it means the world to me and to Sean to, uh, to, to speak to you today. And, uh, and I, I wish you and yours all the best moving forward in uh, 2021 and beyond and uh, all the success and, and, and love and respect to you and yours. Same. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. That's Jamie Madigan and PhD and a much better looking person than both Sean and I combined. Um, Sean, as always, thank you for your hard work. Of course. Um, as always, check us out at osipfoundation.org. Contact the show with the address podcast at osipfoundation.org, facebook.com slash osipfoundation, Twitter and Instagram at osipfoundation, hashtag how you play the game. Uh, and until a couple of weeks when we speak to everybody again, make sure you treat each other with respect. How You Play the Game is a production of the OSIP Foundation, Incorporated. The producer-engineer of this episode is Sean Ryan. Music by SoundSpring Studio. The executive producer of How You Play the Game is Jack Furlong. For more information, visit osipfoundation.org.